flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. It's a bird. It's a plane. Wait, no, it, it actually is a bird. And today we're going to be talking about wildlife viewing with Darren Riedel. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome back to Life in the Flatlands. I'm one of your hosts, Tana, joined by the wonderful and fabulous. Uh, Lindsay. <laughs> uh, we've got an awesome guest on with you today to talk about our recent wildlife viewer survey. So Darren Riddle, welcome back to the podcast. Did I say your last name right, Darren? I think yes. I said okay. it wrong. Okay. And I know how to say your last name. <laughs> I've had so many uh, like panic moments about names on this podcast, but yes, Darren Riddle is joining us again today. If that name sounds familiar, pronounced the correct way, it is because Darren joined us previously. Actually, it was almost the same time last year talking about wild attractions for our Valentine's Day episode. So welcome back, Darren. Hey, great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, I think yeah, a little different topic this time around. <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to have to bite my tongue quite as much this time. <laughs> that, was, that was an entertaining episode. Yeah. It was. If you haven't listened to it yet, um, it looks like it's episode 22. <laughs> so just back right up to last February and you can give it a listen. Yeah, grab your sweetie and just a nice romantic <laughs> evening of listening to Darren's soothing voice on the podcast talking about <laughs> wild attractions. Uh, well, Darren, congratulations because you are our very first Flatlander repeat guest. Well, awesome. It's awesome. major honor. Yeah, I mean, you guys have had a lot of great guests, and um, the cool thing is there's still a lot of people out there you need to get on. Absolutely. Are, yeah, and we're always looking uh, for more ideas. We always remind our listeners, and we remind you as well, um, help us out, help us get connected with these folks. We'd love to share their stories. But, um, Darren, you are full of knowledge in so many different areas, and we are glad you could join us again. So, um, will you give a little bit of a background refresher about you and your role here at KDWP? Yeah, so my current role is I'm the Wildlife Diversity Coordinator, so I work a lot with our State Wildlife Action Plan, uh, State Wildlife Grants, which is like a whole other episode in and of itself, trying to explain all that and how that funding um, <clears throat> ties into what we do here at Wildlife and Parks, not just with uh, non-game, but, you know, like everything. And, and it, you know, it reaches over into what you do with R3 and education and outreach. And so the cool thing is because of that, and sometimes the frustrating thing is it has me sort of dabbling in a lot of different things instead of concentrating on any particular one thing mm-hmm. um, about my job. So I, I tend to get spread pretty thin um, dealing with a lot of different stuff like um, education outreach and wildlife viewing, which are what we're going to talk about today. So, um, yeah, so that's probably that is my main the main part of my job is is dealing with our state wildlife action plan, implementing that. We're about to go under a major um, ten year revision here in another year with that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it might be good you know good time at that point to. Discuss it more. So. Yeah, that's a great idea. And we visited with uh, Jackie Augustine earlier today with Audubon of Kansas, and she mentioned that Audubon of Kansas was a recipient of one of the Chickadee Checkoff grants. So that was kind of a cool connection there, too. Yeah, and I'll actually bring up Chickadee Checkoff. It actually ties into some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today. So, uh, yeah, pretty excited about some of the, the work Jackie's doing, and she's really trying to promote getting people out to, to view wildlife and in her case birds and trying to make it more accessible for more people. So that was a pretty no, no brainer decision to, to, to help fund that project that they're working on. So awesome. Yeah. We're also really excited about it and we loved hearing about it when we got to talk to Jackie about it. Um, we, we do have a lot of things that we're going to chat with you about today. And one of those things that we'd like to discuss is the wildlife viewer survey. But first, Darren, can you define wildlife viewing for us? Um, I can give you my opinion. I, <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, and it, it probably means different things to different people. Um, to me, it's just something as simple as, you know, I have two young kids and anybody with kids, just them going out and whether they're watching roly polies or birds in the yard. I mean, just just watching what's around them and becoming familiar with, you know, you know, just nature. Whether it's in your yard, or if you you go on a hike and see something cool and you watch it, 
you know, whether it's a roly poly crawling across the yard or a bird at your bird feeder or a deer run across the road kind of thing. So it, it can be a lot of different things to different people. And, um, yeah, we'll definitely get into that a lot more as we go today. And why is that wildlife viewing so important or why do we need to learn more about this group of constituents that prompted this survey? Well, I mean, wildlife and parks and all state wildlife agencies, you know, we're essentially a state trust agency. It's, um, we manage our natural resources, um, for the, for the benefit of the public. So, um, our natural resources, our wildlife are basically, I mean, they're a public entity. I mean, they, they belong to the public. We, we, as the agency manage it for them. And so, um, it's important for us to become more transparent about what we do and make sure that we're meeting the needs of our constituents, the constituents being the, the the public, the citizens of the state of Kansas. And we need to know more about what they expect from us as an agency. Right. And historically, because um, our kind of direct means of communication have been primarily with our hunters and anglers, those are the groups that we have the most information on and we know the most about. And so the survey is a wonderful opportunity for us to get to hear from some of those folks that maybe we don't have emails on because they're not purchasing licenses or um, folks that engage with our agency in different ways. So I'm glad that we're getting that information and those voices are being heard. For sure. This this was an interesting exercise, um, just something that just sort of kind of popped up, and I'm glad we were able to, to jump on that when we did. I happen to serve, um, there's a, a group called the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and um, it is basically a group that all the state fish and wildlife agencies um, belong to in the U.S., and we... They kind of serve as an an advocacy role um, for for the states. It gives us, um, you know, different representatives from the state uh, a a place to voice our opinions on on you know what direction that we as a nation should be going and um, and you know that it gives the states an opportunity to drive that that direction. Um, and I'm not, I don't know if I'm doing the best job of describing AFWA, which is kind of the, the acronym for the association, but, uh, th- that's part of what we do. And so I serve on a couple committees for AFWA. Um, one is a wildlife diversity and funding committee. And then, um, there's an education and outreach committee through AFWA. And so there's a joint group that connects education and outreach with the wildlife diversity committee, um, that way we can share information back and forth because we we cover a lot of very common topics. And, you know, for zo- those of us that may be more animal-oriented or biodiversity or research-oriented, the education and outreach folks are, are the folks that we can funnel that information to to get it out to the public. So I'm kind of rambling here a little bit. But uh, Shelly Plant from Texas Parks and Wildlife is, um, you know, she – she uh, has led in a big part of the education and outreach group, and she's also a big part of the wildlife viewing and nature tourism working group through AFWA. And so Shelly began working with a group of um, folks from Virginia Tech. They had applied for some state wildlife grant money to initiate a, a survey looking at wildlife viewing trends in the U.S. across multiple states and different regions in the U.S. What stirred that on, and this, you know, and again, going into a whole another rabbit hole that could be gone down another day, is AFWA a couple of years ago developed this thing called the, the Relevancy Roadmap. And it's looking at, are state wildlife agencies relevant today? Is that traditional North American model of wildlife relevant today? And that North American model, in short, is that model where, you know, the states kind of cater to hunters and fishers. Hunters and fishers buy the license. They provide, the, you know, they provide a lot of the funding to the state agencies. And, and so a lot of the work that we in the states do kind of cater more to those groups. But how has that changed over time? And I mean, that's obviously changed in a lot of ways, and that's a huge part of your job, Tana. So I'm sure you guys have discussed that quite a bit. And I know you and I have discussed it quite a bit, too, Mm -hmm. because one of my hobbies being just shooting and being active in shooting sports and not so much hunting anymore. So because of this relevancy roadmap, there's a lot of states looking for that information is 
how is our state constituents how 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 have they changed? How has the demographics and the makeup of our state constituents changed? How has their interests changed? What, you know, um, you know, we see a decline in hunters and fishers, you know, if are, are people still engaging in wildlife and how? So Virginia Tech uh, received these funds and they began looking for states interested in participating in in this pilot project. And so... The cool thing about serving with Shelly as a co-chair on this one working group is I kind of heard about it early, and there's actually a lot of states lining up going, ooh, ooh, we want to be one of the, you know, the pilot states, mm-hmm. um, especially since some of the initial funding was being covered under that, that grant. And so there were about 15 states. Don't ask me to name them all off the top of my head. I don't <laughs> think I could right now. But but there are about 15 states, including Kansas, that were able to jump on this initial study. And so they kind of have a national survey and then state-specific surveys. And so all the states that jumped on uh, basically formed a steering committee. So we all kind of got to help develop the questions and that sort of thing that went into the survey um, so that they were kind of generic enough to answer more broad questions, but at least touch on some things of interest for each of the states participating. Hmm. That's fascinating. And I love that you brought up Relevancy Roadmap, too, because, um, you know, that roadmap is looking at how we're relevant to our outside constituents. And in there, there are recommendations and barriers that need to be addressed as far as our internal workings as an agency. And that's one of the most um, valuable components of that relevancy roadmap is looking at internally how we could potentially um, restructure or just reconsider the way that things have always been done, which is very important to do. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it's really cool, too, that um, this survey was developed in the sense that we could look at just our individual state responses, but then also compare that on a national level or to other states potentially in our region and see where those differences lie. So that's a really interesting component of the Mm -hmm. survey, Darren. So as far as um, this project in general, what questions were you hoping to answer? You know, basically we're looking at who views wildlife, what, you know, what does wildlife viewing mean to them? Are, Are there any specific activities related to wildlife viewing that, that people, our constituents, folks in our state do? And then how do we, as an agency, play a role? I mean, do and how do we interact with our constituents, or do we interact? And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of agency-specific questions there. Right, and, and this being a wildlife viewing survey, I'm curious who was even surveyed. <clears throat> So the whole idea was to try to get a cross-section of peep folks across the state, both urban and rural. And I, I think they got, and I don't have, um, I was going through the day and I actually forgot to jot down the actual urban versus rural, but it's it's pretty representative of what you'd expect for Kansas. So, you know, we have, what, two major urban centers and some bigger, some more growing ones, and then a lot of very rural countries, particularly as you move westward. So Mm -hmm. it it was pretty representative of that. Um, And then they had a company called Qualtrics, I believe. Um, And it's an online uh, survey company. And basically the the survey work was done online. They they went out and tried to recruit um, sort of across the board, a good cross-section of what, Kansas citizens look like where they're from, you know, backgrounds, that sort of thing. Yeah. And encourage them to participate in the survey. And I, I believe there's some level of compensation for, for doing so to try to encourage um, people for doing this survey work. And I'm just going to throw out, I'm kind of amazed. This is the second survey I've been involved with in the last couple of years at how well this works because we're all inundated with robocalls and everything else and the the fact that you you can still get in touch with people and get them to participate is pretty pretty amazing. That's so so good to hear because we had Human Dimension Specialist Susan Steffen on the podcast, as you know, and um, the lovely, wonderful Susan Steffen, and she talked to us about kind of the survey fatigue that's happening and how those responses just in general to surveys have gone down nationwide. Mm -hmm. Um, But perhaps that's indicative of just how much people care about the subject matter and want to be involved in these efforts. So that's wonderful. Listeners, we encourage you to um, to respond to these surveys, and we're glad to hear that you are. Um, if you get 
picked as one of the people that receives these surveys in the mail, it's important, and this is your voice being heard. So it's awesome to see that all play out in real time. I'm one of those people that just flat out ignores all of the phone calls. So (laughs) I'm, I'm like... Do I have guilt? Did I did I miss an important survey oh, no. where I've been contributing really important data? Maybe. Possibly. Sorry. <laughs> oh man. So okay. So you all use Qualtrics. So this was um, how, how were the surveys conducted? Was this um, information that was mailed to constituents? Was it phone surveys? How did that work? Combination. A combination. I think I cannot actually get i I can't get into the details. Not because it's. Not a lot. I just honestly don't Mm -hmm. remember. It's something we talked about early on, um, but this was a year, year and a half ago, and I don't. The details are I just haven't stuck with me Um, because all this was done. You know, once we got the questions in place, basically Virginia Tech and Qualtrics handled everything else, Mm -hmm. and then we just got back together once the survey work was done and started going through the results and everything. Yeah. So I I apologize. There are some of those details that are oh, yeah, lost. That's in okay. Yeah. Well, and that's the beauty of working with these partners, like the folks at Virginia Tech and like Qualtrics, is being able to step away from that component of it and then be able to just focus on the data when that comes in. So I'm glad to hear that that worked out well. And those folks are obviously experts in reaching people and engaging them in surveys. So I'm, I'm really glad that that all came together the way it did. Right. And speaking of results... I think we're ready to kind of start talking about what came out of all of those surveys. So um, what what are the key takeaways or the big standouts from the whole thing? Well, the big standouts, and and I'll tell you right now, nothing really jumped out at me as shocking or surprising. Jotted down a bunch of uh, points here. Not surprisingly, the most popular activities were visiting parks, natural areas. Um, That's how most people um, engage in wildlife viewing in Kansas. the other activity was feeding wild birds, so bird feeders are a are, are pretty big thing. Most survey participants were interested in, in birds and, and land mammals. Yeah, so whether it's viewing birds in your backyard or going to somewhere, what was kind of interesting is that most people identified as beginner or novice with a few as intermediate. Nobody really considered themselves expert wildlife viewers, so... Um, I don't know why that surprised me, but I thought, you know, you might get a few people right. that are pretty active. But was was it were you trying to define if they viewed themselves as good viewers of wildlife or good people or their skills at identifying the wildlife that they were viewing? And that's something we discussed and maybe that was one of the questions. Um they didn't understand, but as we go through the some of this stuff, it, it begins to make a little more sense in that maybe they just weren't sure how to do it or where to go, and that Ooh, yeah. that was that proved to be a big thing a little later on. Um, but as I get into that, one of the things they did do is divided the wildlife viewers into two groups: consumptive and non-consumptive. So, consumptive viewers are people that engage in wildlife viewing that also hunt or fish. And then non-consumptive are those that do not hunt or fish. And I could kind of argue there's some gray areas there, and I might touch on those if we have time as, as we go through. The consumptive viewers, not surprisingly, were the ones that felt a bit more comfortable. I mean, because they, they like to go out and view wildlife, but they're also engaging in hunting and fishing. And there's kind of another step knowledge-wise that's required to be successful in those endeavors and and it, it it's kind of cool i mean you know to be a successful hunter to be a successful fisher you know you need to learn a little bit about what you're going after so there's a little bit more effort into collecting knowledge from that standpoint consumptive viewers are more were more likely to take others out and teach others about the outdoors and, and wildlife which makes sense um i'm not sure about your upbringing but that's you know going out with my dad and my grandfather, you know, hunting or whatever, that was sort of the, the family thing that was passed along. Consumptive viewers are more likely to participate in collecting data or volunteer projects that might be like looking at enhancing habitat, picking up trash, that sort of thing. And we're more likely to purchase project or products where the funding went back to support con- conservation. And consumptive viewers were much more familiar with our agency than non-consumptive viewers, which also makes sense because they're buying licenses and paying attention to rules and regs where most non-consumptive viewers don't necessarily have to do that. 
those were the big things. And some of the things that, you know, some of the non-consumptive viewers, particularly both subsets, particularly non-consumptive viewers, though, had questions about was where to get information and, and learning where to go, how to get out and do it, how to be involved, how to do become more involved in wildlife viewing. Both groups, but particularly non-consumptive viewers, were reliant. Even though they're not as familiar with us as an agency, we're much more reliant on us um, for providing that information. Hmm. That's interesting. And it's interesting, too, to see the parallels there with R3 because some of the biggest barriers we see to folks getting in the outdoors for hunting and fishing are not knowing where to go and not having anyone to go with, which I kind of associate with the how, too, because there Uh is so much mentorship there. Um, So, yeah, that's fascinating that those barriers still exist despite some of the differences between recreation styles. Right. What was cool is more than a third of both of all the groups combined, all all the survey folks combined, are willing to contribute to KDWP if funds would be used for conservation of rare species and to support wildlife viewing activities and also more access. Mm. Access is a biggie. Gosh, how important is that to have that information down and on paper and have data to point to, especially as we look at like Recovering America's Wildlife Act, as we look at states like um, Missouri, our neighbors next door that have a wonderful state tax that supports their wildlife and conservation efforts, um, to know that our our constituents, at least those that were surveyed, are somewhat supportive of this work. It's got to be wonderful to have that down as real data. Yes. And I want to point out, I want to jump, I'm going to jump to something else real quick to kind of support a, a couple comments made here. This was really cool. So about 30 years ago, the agency conducted a survey looking at um, Kansas citizens' opinions on threatened and endangered wildlife. And then about 10 years ago, they did it a second time. And, and like I said, it's been about a 10 years since the last one. So we go, hey, let's do it a third time. What's cool is all three surveys over the last 30 years, we've we have been able to have the same company and the same people redo that survey three times. So we've been able to maintain some consistency. The quest we've changed the questions a little bit just because of, you know, things things change over time. But um, basically, ask the same questions. Um, and, and what's interesting, and it and it ties in directly to the the last couple things I've mentioned here. And that the the main results um, from the TNE survey is the majority of folks, and this, and they're able to break it down by landowners, whether you own land or not, and the size <clears throat> of your holdings. Uh, the majority of Kansans surveyed support land purchases by wildlife and parks. Um, <clears throat> they felt that. And, and what I have exact numbers for here is 94% of the survey people, folks surveyed on the TNE survey felt that wildlife and parks should continue to identify and protect critical habitat for the existence of threatened and endangered wildlife. And 82% um, felt we should do the same for plants in Kansas. And there's a big push lately for um, supporting pollinators and that sort of thing and pushing more towards native pollinators plants that are used by native pollinators. Um, and um, so, yeah, that actually ties in pretty well. I mean, those results from one subset of Kansans actually mirrors uh, results from similar questions on, on a different survey and a different subset of Kansans. So, yeah, I mean, I, the, 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 our, I feel like our constituents are very supportive of conservation in the state. It just goes back to, I think one of the big things we need to do is um, be more transparent about how we as an agency work, um, encourage more public involvement, and also reach out and, and you know, it's part of encouraging more involvement, just reach out and work to get more people outside, so... Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Right. I was thinking the exact same thing. It's so cool to see the parallels there, despite the differences in time mm-hmm. of those two surveys and to be able to compare because, you know, I mean, not only is that exciting to see, but it also 
um, speaks to the continued validity of your research and that like, yes, we're seeing consistent answers here and we can point to that. Um, I'm curious, is this information being made available to like our Kansas, Kansas legislators at all? Or like, do these folks that are in high decision making places have access to these sort of surveys and information? It's available to anybody. It's on our website. We, you know, all, all our reports and everything off, off any of the funding that we do, we do post, um, online so anybody can access it. So these are available. So from that standpoint, yeah, you know, as far as approaching the legislature with it, you know, it's starting to get right above me a little bit. So. Right. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll be sure to include a link to that for our listeners so they can direct themselves directly there. Um, they can share that with anybody else they know that might be interested and yeah, mm-hmm. just get the information out there. Yeah. So then that leads to our next question, and that is um, what still needs further exploration, in your opinion, or based on the opinion of the group? There's several things. You know, one – you know, back to the funding aspect and the education aspect, something else that we've been working on is you mentioned our Chickadee Checkoff Program, which is a, a non-game wildlife improvement program that we um, was initiated back in the 80s. And so we've been trying to revamp it because a lot of the advertising information and just <clears throat> about it is was made in the 80s, and you can tell it was made in the 80s and it hasn't changed. So... Um, some of the donations, the donations have really dropped over the few years uh, with Chickadee Checkoff. Um, and so the last few years we've been trying to just get more information out there that this exists. It was originally set up as a a um, checkoff on your taxes, on your state income taxes. Um, but you can also donate at any time. And so we, we've set up a... Um, an actual landing page for it with some information. It's just chickadeecheckoff.com, and then that links directly back to our our web page. Um, but when we're doing the TNE survey, that was one of the, you know, we've we've continued to have a high level support for conservation of threatened and endangered wildlife, but at the same time, the number, the knowledge about the programs like Chickadee Checkoff has declined considerably so we need to do a better job about advertising some of those programs because that's a great way um <clears throat> of getting people to participate in wildlife viewing you know just like with the program that jackie augustine and audubon of kansas are doing um trying to provide materials for folks to just get out and become involved in bird watching and that sort of thing yeah she visited with us a little bit about her adventure packs and that was a really great community level effort to get people more involved provide them with the tools they need that was awesome to hear and darren i have to compliment you all the uh, chickadee checkoff website is looks absolutely wonderful so like darren said chickadeecheckoff.com we encourage you to go there um we at kansas department of wildlife and parks get a lot of comments from constituents that say you know i'm really interested in giving back to wildlife conservation in the state but i don't necessarily identify as a hunter or angler how can i get involved how can i give back and of course um, you can purchase hunting and fishing licenses, and that will go back to converse, uh, conservation of both game and non-game species. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, Chickadee Checkoff is also a wonderful, wonderful way to give back. So please go check out that resource. Um, it's available to you. And also this website has some really awesome completed Chickadee Checkoff projects that you can learn more about and uh, see exactly how that money is being put to use. Yeah, we definitely want to advertise our successes, you know, not only a success for Chickadee Checkoff, but also recognize the hard work that people that we fund i mean they're putting into this you know they're designing those projects and making sure they get done and you know not only is the funding coming from chickadee checkoff but they're bringing in different partners to help contribute as well so and a lot of volunteer work so that's great right if our listeners don't have or would like to contribute through the tax option is that still there for them to just check the box on their taxes because you know tax season's coming up it's upon us it consider is. it <laughs> i just did mine i i contributed a hunk of my state income tax back to it just because i really support the program but yeah yep um now now is the time so amazing love that mm-hmm. well you know where to go folks consider contributing to conservation mm-hmm. so, so other than getting on oh i'm sorry darren did you have oh i was just going to kind of continue with that question unless you yeah, had somewhere somewhere please, please. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You know, I kind of want to really explore. I think we could really start to get down in the weeds a little bit too um, on the wildlife viewing and looking at. I mean, how or what people? You know, it, it kind of was generic. So, birds and land mammals is what a lot of people go after. But we're seeing an increase 
and other types of wildlife viewing as well. And, and it, it, it introduces some interesting conundrums in relation to like the North American model. So, you know, one example I always bring up is amphibians and reptiles. Cause that's my background as a herpetologist. Um, and a lot of people field herping is a growing thing. People just like birding. They keep a little checklist, a life list. I do. Um, and, um, of the amphibians and reptiles they've seen in the wild. And they like to go to new places and see new things. There's actually a growing business. I mean, a growing, I guess you'd call it a business. Um, internationally, people are setting up programs in other countries, just like birding tours. They have amphibian reptile watching tours. And I've led a few to South Africa over the years. And I just got back from um, going on one with some friends. And they run one in Peru. So that that was great. But a lot of people, actually Kansas, it's kind of weird, but Kansas is a herping destination for a lot of people. We have several things that are easy to see in Kansas. Um, and what's interesting about it is, you know, birds, you can drive around, you look through binos, and, you know, you don't always have to get that close to a bird to identify it. Where in many cases, you're out actively looking, you're rolling over logs or rocks, and and you're actually catching the snake or the lizard and looking at it and taking pictures. And some of them you do have to have in hand to identify. And then and then you let them go. And because there's a pursuit aspect, um, in Kansas and most states, you're required to have a hunting license to engage in this. And so a lot of folks who are into herping are buying hunting licenses. And some of them hunt, some of them don't. And so that's kind of an interesting conundrum there. I mean, there, it's almost considered consumptive use, although 99.9% .9 of the time the animal's being let go at the point of capture, but, you know, they're still contributing financially mm -hmm. through, you know, buying a hunting license. Um, and there's always um, a lot of poking and gesturing um back and forth <clears throat> it's like well we buy a hunting license you know what do birders do you know what do birders contribute but I, i've actually heard of birders that are willing to pay some kind of user fee to help support you know maintenance of uh, of particularly habitat um and particularly here in kansas you know we're right smack dab in the middle of the central flyway and we're blessed here in pratt that we're within an hour of two Ramsar rated wet, you know, wetlands to the biggest stopovers for migratory birds in the nation. Heading, and, yeah, to hit Cheyenne Bottoms or Cabrera Wetlands in May is pretty awesome. And I'm not a birder, but I still love going up there once or twice a year. So, And I know some of these folks have approached us as an agency. It's like, how do we contribute? And so I, I think we, we need to better explore how people approach wildlife viewing, what their interests are, and if they want to be more involved in the agency, let's figure out how to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So, well, let me turn the tables on you guys a little bit, <laughs> Miss R3 coordinator. Oh, boy. Let me have it. <laughs> no, I mean, so knowing what you know now, I mean, I know you're not <clears> – <throat> and, and I shouldn't I shouldn't be this way, but I know, you know, as far as R3, you're kind of – more traditional R3 in some ways, but you're also, you know, kind of branch out and work in all these other areas. But, I mean, how do you see some of this information kind of, you know, using that and in, in your approach to R3 on the hunting side of things? Well, I'm trying to think of how to best answer that. One of the biggest things I think we focus on that resonates really well with a lot of our core audience, which happens to be, in, in a large way, adult onset is focusing on um, these kind of more traditional activities from a more holistic approach. And I think that they've always really been practiced that way as far as, you know, if I'm out in the field hunting, like we spoke about earlier, 99% of my time is bird watching and then I pull the trigger and I'm able to harvest a deer if I'm so lucky or whatever. But um, really focusing on that and just focusing on 
people's wildlife values and what they really value about wildlife and then how we can tie all of that together. Um, You know, one of the things that really interests me about this survey was some of the access constraints and how that can unite groups, whether or not they feel like they participate in the same way. It's like, well, we all value habitat. We are all passionate about access um, and just making sure that people can get out there and that there's wildlife to be viewed for future generations for this generation. So um, in some senses, it it kind of makes me frustrated because it's like we are not, we're all similar. And um, to put people in boxes, and I was guilty of that before I took this job, I would say. And um, as I've gotten more and more involved, I'm starting to see the lines blur much more. Um, but we live in an era that is full of polarization. <laughs> and so, I, but I think work like this and surveys, having this concrete information helps us to communicate those points and connect audiences so much more. So um, I don't know at this point, I'm kind of rambling. But I don't know. That was very eloqu- eloquently put. Yeah, I would say what's interesting is the part of the reason I asked that is um, if you go back and you look at this relevancy roadmap, and and, and I know for some of you who may not be familiar with it, um, we've just kind of skipped around it a little bit for this podcast, but basically the reason it's called a roadmap is it sets up a series of discussion points, and it looks at barriers to growth for us as an agency. And some of that is what we've been talking about today is looking at our constituents. What's our constituent makeup? What are they interested in? What do they want from us as an agency? You know, as our customers, what do they expect from us? And then some of the other barriers they discuss are internal barriers and some of these divisions and putting people in boxes and that sort of thing. So, um, and I have... It has not been the case here in Kansas, but I, having worked in non-game sections of other wildlife agencies, um, particularly in the West, there has been, um, I just remember a, a person mo- that was moving from one section of an agency over to our non-game section, so all his coworkers snuck in as a goodbye and decorated his like office with like tie dye and tree hugger stuff because he's going over to non game. And so there's, you know, sort of been that division in those boxes. And so, um, recognize those divisions and figuring out how to sort of do away with that and and work back and forth. And so, um, you know, I've been guilty of that myself over the years. And so, but as I've gotten older, it's just like, nah, we should figure out how to, how to work together on this. And I, I think there's plenty of opportunities to do so. And one thing I liked about this is with the way they split up the consumptive and non-consumptive users and how active people we consider as consumptive users are, how active they are in just general wildlife viewing. <clears throat> and for you hunters out there, if you've spent any time in a tree stand, there's not a whole lot to do until a deer come by. Exactly. And and so it is fun to bird watch or it's amazing how many bobcats and things I've seen out there. And I don't archery hunt much, but I have great memories of being able to sit so still in a tree and actually have like, like birds land on my arrow, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and so to get those up close and personal experiences you wouldn't get otherwise. Right. And those are just incredible experiences that you wouldn't get unless you were out in the field or already out there bird watching or doing any kind of wildlife viewing. So my whole point with that is just get outside and experience nature, become a part of it, just like we already are, but really get into it. You know, Darren, I feel like you really kind of peeled a layer back for us there for a little (laughs) bit. And, and I'm here for, I really love where this conversation has gone. Which leads me to ask, so now that the survey is complete, we have all of this information, what are the next steps? Man, you know, that's a good question. Um, And we've discussed that ourselves. Um, And and, and some of it just comes from, you know, at some point, you know, I have a a specific job and responsibilities um, that I, I need to take care of and you know, we, so we, we need to kind of hit a point where we have lots of folks working on wildlife viewing. We try to do some through our non-game section. Education and outreach obviously do. I know they've been working on the Kansas birding trail and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then I know you all do um, 
and and your various activities, trying to get people outdoors. You know, so we're all doing it, and I think we need to continue to do it. But you know, at, at some point, how do we beef up one part of the agency? Uh, and and I say this, and I hope I don't get myself in trouble, but it's like one of those things where at some point, um, you know, it's going to require some dedicated staff to really do this well. I mean, we're all trying to work together and do our part. Um, and, and it's kind of cool. I've actually been working with our some of our law enforcement staff on, so, on some things, so they're becoming more involved with this side of it too. So as a whole, the agency's slowly getting there, but it's just trying to get, get – um, you know, I guess get the resources in place that we need to really help it grow. And, and, and I want to throw, you know, there, there was times where we had some of that, but, you know, funding changes, it goes away, it comes back. <clears throat> um, but my first job, I'll date myself a little bit here. My first summer internship was in 93. And at that time, Wildlife and Parks actually had, a summer naturalist program at all their state parks, all the major state parks. And basically that was my job for the summer. And I did it at Elk City Reservoir on two different summers um, was to give nature programs, lead nature hikes, and then work with a biologist doing survey work through the summer. That was an awesome, as an undergrad, that was an awesome job. I can't believe it. And that's something that we've actively talked about here recently is like, what would the emergence of a position like that look like? And how, based on what we know, based on relevancy roadmap, based on this wildlife viewer survey, how can we take all that into play and then explore the potentially of positions like that in the future? Um, I think that's a really incredible application of this. And I, you know, as the educator, I actually learned a lot just trying to prep and do stuff and you know, um, and one aspect of my job is one cool thing about Elk City Reservoir, like a lot of our parks, you know, I had a lot of great trails. And so I was told if you have a slow day, just go hike one of the trails. Maybe you'll find something that you can use on a, another program or something. So again, not a bad job, a summer job. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, I'm sure with your background as a naturalist with the Great Plains <clears throat> Nature Center, you can, you can attest to that. Yeah. It all completely resonates. And I'm having flashbacks of days when I would just go out for a walk and look for materials that I can use in programs. And yeah, those, I mean, it really helps not only connect yourself, but it almost helps you relate to people better. I mean, even when I was just out on the trails looking for stuff, I would stop people on the trail and say, Hey, come look at this cool bug with me, you know, stuff like that. And it just, your excitement gets other people excited and sharing those experiences with people, I think really drive things home more, more so than just reading a book about something. It's those human interactions. It's helping each other learn and really appreciate to love nature. Yes. And Darren, one of the things we've talked about multiple times now is access. And um, when people think of access, they think of a lot of different things. And one of them is just, is there land available that I can I can get onto? Um, or is it all privately owned and I don't have permission to be there? But another one of those things is, is it accessible in terms of, can I get there in 30 minutes with screaming kids in the car and give them an experience <laughs> with nature? You know, I mean, it's it's um, beyond just whether or not it exists, but whether or not it's within a realistic proximity for the lifestyles that our constituents have. Um, maybe they can drive for four hours to go see prairie chickens, and that's wonderful. But we also want to make sure that there are opportunities that are there uh, close to home. And so... Um, like the Great Plains Nature Center in Wichita is a wonderful example of a nature center that's in an urban area that provides some of those opportunities. So, right, even just a city park. Mm-hmm. I mean, go to your local park. Yeah. So, just advocating for those spaces as well when we think about access. Right. And also, I really loved the survey touched on um, some diverse means of access as well. So, folks that um, maybe are differently. Um, have different abilities than others, different ability constraints. Um, the survey looked at those folks, too, and whether or not we were meeting their needs. Because like you mentioned, our job is not to meet the needs of hunters and anglers. It's not to, the, uh, to meet the needs of certain individuals in Kansas. It's our broad, diverse constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really important. And I'm glad the survey touched on that group as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, something that I've noticed when it comes to surveys and gathering data is that usually that leads to more questions. So I'm wondering, um, are there any any other additional surveys or efforts that are kind of in the works and getting ready to go out or being thought about right now? 
Um, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I'm sure there probably is. Um, right. And this is still really fresh. Like we only just got this information not very long ago. Right. 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 And I know like this group wants to take this a little farther, um, you know, as far as whether it's setting up focus groups or that sort of thing in certain states, but it, it does require, uh, quite a bit of funding to do that. And so, um, you know, you know, I haven't heard what states are participating at this point or, um, and what all they're doing. I don't have the details on that. Uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely a lot more that, that, that we could be doing. And so, um, and like I said, I, I've had some other things to tackle and, and I really enjoy this. this is really interesting, but I'm also stepping way outside my bounds with, cause I am not a human dimensions person. So, I might not always know the right questions or, or, you know, maybe sometimes being an outsider, maybe just throw a couple ringers in there too. That perspective is valuable. I'm sure. All right. So we are nearing the end of our episode and we're going to wrap up um, and ask you a couple questions that we ask all of our <laughs> listeners or not all of our listeners, all of our guests and <laughs> um, listeners. You can absolutely answer these questions too. But before we do that, we just want to encourage you um, be sure to like share, subscribe to our podcast. Also leave us a review. We read your reviews. We love your reviews and we might even give you a shout out on the podcast if you do. So let us know what you think. If you have ideas, like we mentioned earlier for additional topics, episodes, guests, we would love to hear from those as well um we're also kind of bringing in more of a storytelling element and chatting about the ways like we've talked about with relevancy that our agency is relevant to folks in the outdoors so what was your journey into the outdoors like or did you come to a program and have a unique experience that you want to share with us um we want to share those stories too so be sure to reach out okay first of our wrap-up questions as you know since you've been on the show before we're curious, as always, what are you the most excited about, um, especially when you think about the future of wildlife viewing? As kind of a science guy, data guy, the ability to use wildlife viewing as a citizen science platform and collect data. Um, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. And I'm, I'll, I'll probably go off on a little bit of a tangent. So if I ramble too long, reel me back in. <laughs> there are a lot more, when I say you all, I'm meaning our constituents, the listeners of the podcast and everybody else. There's a lot more of you out there than there are of us. <clears throat> and you're going to see a lot more cool critters, cool observations than we are, just sheer numbers of being out there. And there's some great platforms, whether it's just general science, uh, citizen science work with your cell phone, just snapping a picture of a butterfly or a frog that you see, and you can post those on um, iNaturalist is a biggie. Uh, two of them that I use a lot is... Uh, um, Hurt Mapper, which focuses on amphibians and reptiles. Uh, Fort Hayes State, um, through some funding with us, has set up uh, an amphibian reptile atlas and a mammal atlas, so you can post observations there. And two of the biggest citizen science activities out there involve both birds and, and uh, amphibian reptiles. So if anybody's ever been, been involved in a Christmas bird count, those are standardized counts that take place in December. They've been going on for a hundred and some years. So if you can imagine these bird counts taking place all over the U.S. every year for over a century, just that amount of data that has been collected. Um, you know, when we look at that internally for wildlife and parks, anytime we have to review a species status, you know, one of the things we're looking at is species observations and locations over the last 30 years. And so, these things such as Chris, um, these Christmas bird counts and, and other things provide a lot of that data that we use when we're making decisions on, you know, whether we consider species common, declining, increasing, that sort of thing. Um, and so outside of the Christmas bird counts, uh, one of the other um, groups I should mention are eBird. You can post our observations on eBird. Um, one of the things I've tried to resurrect, it kind of died out in the early 2000s, is the Kansas Herp Society had annual herp counts in the spring. Um, and I think, what was that? Let me find, I wrote that down. I mean, that was a big one for us, too. Um, so since the inception of the Kansas Herp Society on hosted field trips and their, their bird counts, um, <clears throat> they've published 472 counts. Um, that have taken place in 81 of the 105 counties in Kansas. Uh, 
documented 94 species of amphibians and reptiles and close in 74,000 individuals. So that's a lot of data that um, is available to us. And I, I can easily say, having been involved in herpetology in the U.S. for as long as I have, um, we know more about the distribution of amphibians and reptiles in Kansas than any other state, just through citizen, straight citizen science efforts. That's fascinating. That's incredible. So, yeah, it's that is me personally just because of my job and my interest. That's what excites me the most about yeah. people outdoors. Okay, I have a follow-up question before we get to another one. So let's say we have people who want to contribute to science in these different activities, but they don't quite have the level of knowledge to identify every single bird or every single reptile and amphibian that they see out in the field. What do you say to those folks who feel like they aren't quite there yet to contribute to that level of community science? Um, or even what resources can they start using to get better or even learn more from other people? You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. First of all, it doesn't matter. Just get out. Um, and there are some great field guides um, available. Most Nature centers carry most of the, the, the common field guides, and, and most of them are pretty inexpensive, and there's a wide range um, covering a lot of different taxa. We have our our pocket guide series here um, that we use a lot, and I know there's at least two pocket guide authors sitting at the table today. So, <laughs> um, and then... Um, you know, those are the, you know, those are the best places to start. If you can get in on guided tours, um, whether they're bird tours or just general nature watching tours, like somebody at Green Plains Nature Center or one of our state parks, or um, that's a great way to learn. And I know there's different outreach classes and that sort of thing. There's a lot of local Audubon groups that do a lot of bird, just little bird watching tours. So getting in with some of those. Um, and I know the Audubon groups, I just want to sh- shout out, there's... Another interesting trend that a lot of these societies, particularly the Audubon groups, and I've worked with a couple here in Kansas and given presentations, um, a couple Audubon groups in Arizona. And what's interesting is they're all aging out. It's the the age, the average age of a lot of these Audubon groups just keeps going up because there's nothing pulling them back down again. And, and, and so I think getting more younger people involved in some of these groups would be great. And, and so I know there's a lot of younger folks that, that engage in these activities. And, and so having them more involved in some of these groups would be great. So, yeah, just in, in becoming more involved in, in some of those things. Um, and, you know, even if you're not comfortable, there are different – like with iNaturalist, they rank their – the records differently depending on the the level of ID and then they have state and regional level experts. Um, you can go on there and you'll have, you know, you'll see like frog and grasshopper and that sort of thing, which is fine. And then eventually, um, you know, maybe one of the, the regional ex- experts that volunteers their time for iNaturalist can come through and, and see that picture and go, Oh, okay. That's a Southern leopard frog. And then they can, bump your ID, you know, bump up your ID for you and that sort of thing. So even if you don't know, you can still post it. And that's another great way to learn is like, hey, what is this, you know, and somebody will come on and ID it for you. Well, we live in the age of social media, too. And as many potentially negative reactions that are possible with social media there it's also a wonderful opportunity to connect especially over our natural resources and get help with id find a larger sense of community so one of the groups that i definitely want to point our listeners to um, is your wildlife diversity page so that's wildlife diversity uh, for kansas wildlife and parks you'll see our chickadee checkoff logo is the profile picture be sure to jump in and follow that page Um, you can get information about events um, really interesting tidbits and facts about nature beautiful pictures of animals updates on projects that's going on um really really an awesome page to follow but there are a million facebook pages dedicated to every niche outdoor activity <laughs> and interest level out there so um darren do you want to shout any of those out um yeah you know the you know the the couple that i pay the most attention to is our wildlife diversity page mm-hmm. um obviously and thanks for bringing that up um i i, I was remiss and not mentioning that yet but uh um and then the kansas herpetological society i know has a page uh there's a page i think called kansas plants and animals that does a lot of id 
Um, so those, those those are a couple examples, and I'm sure there's many, many more. I haven't explored them. I'm not quite the social media person that other people are. So I want to get on a soapbox a little bit here. Um, these are wonderful resources to check out. If you are a newbie or if you are an expert alike, I do have a, a plea, a request. Um, for those of you that do have some more information, more knowledge, is to go forth with kindness and help out um, those folks that are interested in the outdoors, whether they're young people, whether they're just newbies in general. Um, sometimes on Facebook we see a lot of kind of tongue-in-cheek, goofy comments, and that's that's hilarious for those that um, understand that you're being sarcastic or joking. Um, at the same time, there is often someone out there behind the screen that is really searching for genuine information and assistance. So um, keep that in mind. There's a time and place for those things. That's totally just my soapbox, but let's create a wonderful and welcoming community um, online and offline to all of our wildlife viewers and outdoor conservationists. Well said. Thank you. (laughs) Can't argue that. All right. So back on track with our wrap up questions, we started with what you're excited with. Now, what keeps you up at night? Um, let's see. As far as wildlife viewing goes, I have to admit, I don't know. I have kids, so I have big. There's been <laughs> bigger, more existential questions. I'm trying to think. So I'm trying to think of a wildlife. View. You know, I mean, hoping my kids that, you know, I'm hoping they they stay interested in this and become engaged and that they there's still opportunities available for them to see some of the things that I did. You know, whether they're they go into biology or something else, I at least want them to have some appreciation for it. So that that's a biggie. And then, you know, it's like uh, as far as lo- looking forward in the future, it's like <clears throat> What happens, as you all know, is the higher you move up in this profession, the less you get out on a daily basis. So it's like, when do I get to go out again? Mm, That's That's tricky. Yeah. All right, Darren. Last but not least, what would you pose as a challenge to our listeners? Go outside. Go outside. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, it really is. It it really is. Um, You know, think. Find your inner child. It's amazing. As you grow older, the things, I mean, having little kids and just the way they see things and everything that moves fascinates them. And and I like the fact that I have to warn my kids. It's like I don't want to warn them. I'm just like, okay, some things you can pick up, some things you can't, you know, and don't be scared of everything. So just know that, yeah, these things you can touch, these things don't touch. So. I think that's a good safety rule. Yeah, yeah. always important. I have to remind myself as an adult sometimes to <laughs> also same. Yeah, also same. Uh, Darren, well, it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you for joining us. I'm sure we'd love to have you back on third time. So keep us posted there, and uh, we'll get you back on the mic. We'll do. We'll do. Yeah, thanks for having me back. This was a, a fun way to end a Monday afternoon for uh. sure. Good. I'm glad. Oh, that just reminded me that it's still Monday. It is a Monday. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, what a fun way to start. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So. Well, as always, an honor. Um, yeah, that's it. That's a wrap for this episode. A wrap. Well, remember, listeners, flat is, is a, a state, state of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at kswildlifefed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. <laughs> <laughs>